I've been ready since I saw it in theaters. Welcome back to Experimental Corner with the Good Trash Genre Cast. Ooh, the podcast within a podcast. That's right. We got a little experimental moment, yes, because we just watched the 2016 initial released, um, 2018 released. 2020. 20, uh, I 2020. guess 2020, yeah. 2020 on Netflix. On the day yeah. of his birth. Yeah. Sir David Lynch. Um, David Lynch, uh, short film. Um, what did Jack do? And what did Jack do to that chicken? He reached up under those feathers and grabbed a hold. That's exactly what he. I, There's a line. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Dustin, walk us through this one. I okay. watched this twice today. Uh, well, I literally just watched it for the very, very first time. And so, I mean, obviously, we're t- we're playing around with film noir tropes, right? Yeah. With the black and white photography, but sure. also just the Smoky sort of lights. the film, the kind of film grain effect. Yeah, the Chascaro kind of, um, uh, you know, high contrast black and white work there. But, um, you know, David Lynch is playing what seems to be something like a police. Police officer or detective. I mean, he's credited as detective yes. uh, in the film, and he's um, confronting Jack at a train station because Jack is a capuchin monkey. He is with human lips. important to note with yeah. human lips, which I think uh, you're right, Dalton. I believe they are Lynch's own lips, and it certainly is Lynch's own sound. Yeah, um, yeah. Cu- you know, with some processing coming. Through Nothing but respect for my Doolittle. Um, and so uh, yeah, um. And it's basically just this interview or this um, kind of interrogation, I guess you'd call it. Netflix give give David Lynch 175 million now, to make a proper Doolittle. Yeah, I'm saying. Oh man, I want David Lynch's Doolittle. I, I like the idea of David Lynch sitting down to be like, eh, everything's a cartoon these days. I don't know what to make. Uh, what if we cut out some lips on a monkey? Everything's just talking to animals now. I saw the Avengers. It's a raccoon. I don't think he's that angry about it. Yeah, yeah. It, I, I, I'm trying. To, I was trying to get to befuddled, but yeah, I, I was really doing Lynch talking about f- movies on yeah. phones. Well, I was he, trying to get to Lynch like confused. The angrier Lynch gets, the higher his voice gets. That's so true. It's more and he's like, you know yeah. what we need more is more cartoons. On your fucking phone. There it is. Yeah, there yeah. it is. There's your Lynch. Um. <laughs> but no, I, I like to imagine it be like, I could make something where there's only one real person in there. Right. And I think, you know, I mean, in terms of analysis or whatever we might say, this is definitely parody. He's goofing around. For he- sure. Heavy, heavy. Silly. I mean, so yeah, they're everyone going... speaks in uh uh, one-liners and kind of, uh, folksy uh, pseudo uh, wisdoms. Oh, you think you just rolled a couple sevens or whatever? You know, I know why the chicken <laughs> crossed the road. Santa Claus isn't real. Yeah, well, it's just I stuff won't like be... that. It's great. And then it gets like really, but th- that line's very funny. And then the monkey responds, "I won't be here for Christmas." And it, g- it gets like suddenly dark <laughs> <Yeah>. and sad. <laughs> And there's a musical number. And there is a musical number, a la Eraserhead. You know, yep, the lady yep. in the radiator yeah. does feel very much of a piece with that. Yeah. And so it definitely fits well into his work. It's got that sort of rundown kind of, um, oh, I'm not going to say quite industrial kind of look. Yep. It's not a thrift store kind of rundown kind of look. Yeah. It's just like this has been abandoned for 75 years and nobody's been in here. There's been no decay. It's just, you know, hermetically sealed as the mummy's, you know, cinnamon smells are coming out as you yeah. open up the crypt. Um, yeah, when Rick lot left Casablanca, they just sealed up parts of the sets, and they yeah. remained ever since. <laughs> and so, yeah, this sort of fake um, uh, train station that they're using there. Um, but it's got yeah, a great vibe. It's got man, it's a great vibe. It's a great fun. It's, I mean, I like it. It's it's very very fun. I don't, I don't know if I have a lot more to say about it than that. Do you guys have any other major bits of commentary? No, but what better way to roll into Ad Astra than talking about our old sad movie dad? Yeah, yeah, for real, because he is our old sad movie dad. And so, yes, we are. Um, hello, welcome again to the Good Trash Honorcast. We uh, got now the podcast with podcast is ended now we can start the show proper it is now the good trash honor cast talking about the films you'll never discuss in a film space course this week's probably not an exception to that um i don't know how much traction will end up having in the world but we'll see we'll it, talk it, it's yeah. good but uh, i don't know again this is uh in january 
It's our anti-trash uh, marathon where every year we, we try to assemble uh, some, well, Arthur tries to assemble some films that are kind of off the road for what our normal programming would be. But I'm kind of with you, Dustin. I feel it, it, like Ad Astra is, might be peak good trash. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's a very good movie, but I mean, there are definitely better science fiction movies. In fact, there's a better science fiction movie from 2019. But um, mm. more on that anon. Um, but I think it fits within our, its aspirations at least yes. fit within this wheelhouse of anti-trash for sure. Yeah, yes. uh, set around it, action set pieces. Exactly. Know, so, uh, But yeah, I'm, I'm very excited to talk about this. Uh, the tie-in for uh, 2020's anti-trash marathon, uh, Arthur... Uh, did his real did do diligence on this one? Getting the new release was a hard one, but this film came out on, on September twentieth. There you go. There you go. You got to make it work, guys. We abided by the rules throughout the marathon. I did. Yeah, and it just comes to show that all numbers are arbitrary. That's right. True. Um, so, oh, by the way, I'm still Dustin. I'm still Dalton. I'm Arthur. And we're so glad you're here with us. If you're tuning in for the very first time, though, we want you to know this is not a review show. It is an analysis show, and this is a very, very new film. And yes. for analysis to take place, there does have to be some spoilers. Now, we're going to try to avoid those uh, for the first part of the show. It's going to look like this. Synopsis, spoiler-free. Uh, thumbs up, thumbs down reviews. Very gentle, or the mildest or most inconsequential of the spoilers. Um, they become maybe slightly more consequential once we get down to um, expanding the syllabus, though I don't believe my syllabus will be doing any of that, but we'll see what the rest of the co-hosts do. And then finally, once we get down to business and it's analysis time, all spoiler bets are off. So um, that way you at least know what's happening and when it's happening and when you might want to pause the podcast if you haven't yet caught the movie and do not wish to be spoiled. However, I do think um, knowing what's going to happen in a movie has no effect on my enjoyment of said film. But That's right. That's the school we come from. But nonetheless... We're post-spoiler. Dr. Reverend Arthur Gordon... Can we hear that synopsis, please? 2019's other artsy sci-fi film is directed by James Gray. Ad Astra is set in a near future wherein the moon, Mars, and seemingly other planets have been colonized and also visited. Roy McBride is recruited to take part in a highly confidential mission in hopes of stopping some mysterious phenomena that has been creating issues on Earth and other planets. As the mission unfolds, Roy discovers that his presumed dead hero astronaut father might still be alive somewhere in the outer reaches of the universe. Roy must work to solve a confidential puzzle and discover whether or not his father is alive and what's causing the phenomena riddling the Earth. Nominated for one Academy Award for sound mixing and barely scraping by with a profit, this is Ad Astra. So, yeah. Sorry, this is Dad Astra. This is Brad Astra. Uh, in my notes, I have referred to the film as uh, Ad, parenthetical, Dad slash Brad Astra. There you yeah. go. It's very important. Or uh, Brad Sadstra. Or Sad Astra. Yeah, there's lots of options. A, a, a Mad Astra because of the rage. All right, well, let's start somewhere. Arthur, you were kind enough to program this film. Uh, this uh, this was your first viewing for the show, correct? Yes. Uh, what are your thoughts? How did it go down for you? Um, I really dug it. I dug it a lot, actually. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I think it does a lot of things perfectly well. Um, the... I was kind of surprised. I only well, I've seen We Own the Night uh, a long time ago, which is mm. one of probably the earlier James Gray movies I've seen. I don't think I'd caught up with anything else since then, except for The Lost City of Z. You were a big fan of that, right? Uh, I was. I was warm on it. I didn't love it. Um, oh, okay. It was mostly because it was an expectations thing. I, I was expecting something else, and it was much more very grounded character study, and gotcha. that's kind of what we get here as well. Um, and so I wasn't expecting something as I guess high concept as as what he plays with here. Mm. Um, just because Lost City of Z is so grounded in reality, uh, and I say that because I mean it's it's a period piece and, yeah, and based Charlie Hunnam and Robert yeah. Pattinson is running around the the jungles of South America or wherever, um, and so uh, to see this movie that is 
got a lot more suspense and tension in it. I mean, this to me is probably one of the more tense experiences I've had watching a movie this year. I'd put it up there with Uncut Gems and The Nightingale. Oh, wow. Pure experiments and tension. Mm -hmm. Uh, That opening set piece is incredible. I I, I know he's going to survive, but to be able to... uh, (laughs) Yeah. If you didn't know this movie was about Brad Pitt for two hours, then sorry to bust the bubble. So, yeah, 15 minutes in, he's not <laughs> yeah, going to die. Not an executive situation. He was dead uh, the whole situation. time. <laughs> Haley Joel Osment showed up. I was not expecting now, hold on. that. I, w- I could play with that reading. Hold on. <laughs> it does feel very spiritual, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, yeah. Uh, I, I, we did, talked about this a lot last week. I did. And this kind of grounded sci-fi uh, trope. And that's what this is. I mean, I like that it's set in the near future. We don't know when or where or why. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that opening set piece revealing that we've got these, like, space towers going all the way down to Earth uh, into the atmosphere uh, was a really interesting thing. And then that we've colonized Mars and we've colonized the moon. Uh, and not just America. Other It alludes to other countries have also colonized mm-hmm. on these planets. Um, and, I, and I like that approach and not really explaining it and kind of keeping that in the dark and letting us play in this world, I think, is a smart move um, because you could easily get wrapped up in the the how and why and when. Um, but I think Gray is, is smart enough to avoid getting into those discussions and focusing solely on Pitt's arc here. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, it's beautifully shot. Um, oh, what's his name? Uh, Hoyt. Yeah, Hoyt. Hoyt. Hoyt um, he's, uh, his cinematography, uh, is, is gorgeous here. Uh, it's yeah, he's really shooting on work. film and it's got that nice texture to it. And it looks beautiful. There's some great, uh, shots and moments, uh, with the camera, uh, throughout the film, uh, opening with them. And then just throughout, there's just great use of color. And, um, I appreciate the cinematography on this a lot. And the, the technically, I mean, I think it's incredibly solid. I, I, I wish this movie had done better because I think it deserves a lot of recognition, uh, cause it's incredible to look at. Um, Pitt's great. I think it's uh, his better performance this year, and I, I like Once Upon a Time a lot. I think this is a much deeper and layered performance for him. Uh, he gets to really play in this character, and, and I think it's very good. Uh, Tommy Lee Jones uh, is great uh, in the bits that he has. Um, you know, it's it's Tommy. What, yep. You know, expect uh, two things from him. He's either just going to kind of phone it in, or he's going to do something good, and I think he does something good here. Uh, I, I like it a lot. I, I was kind of surprised by how much I liked it. I was constantly on the edge of my seat from all of the kind of set pieces that Dustin alluded to, and I don't want to get into them now uh, in case they come up later. Um, but there's a lot more action uh, that kind of ties this together um, and still really comes home with an emotional uh, exclamation point at the end. Uh, I think it works really well. Um, so I was glad we got around to it. Uh, glad we watched it. Um, it was one I wasn't sure where it kind of land on the end of your list, but I think it'll land pretty highly. You know, I don't know exactly where, but I, I, oh. I'm uh, pretty excited by it. And, like that tease. Yeah, I, I, I really dig it. Um, and so, I, I mean, the score, uh, the, the voiceover, the use of the voiceover and that juxtaposition with Pitt, and I think Dalton will probably get into that some. Um, it's just a great use of voiceover, and that's always a handicap, I think, for a film to try to overcome, and I think it does it well. Uh, and then just kind of the supporting players, Ruth Nega and and, and uh, Papa Papa oh, Sutherland. Oh, Donald Sutherland shows up, you know, even for, for a, a bit. Yeah, yeah. get a Natasha Leone for a scene for a cameo. Like, yeah, okay. Yeah, let's just yeah. throw people in. Yeah. Did you see the letterbox list? It was like, uh, it's titled, "Was that Natasha Leone?" <laughs> and it's like uh, the 2019 edition is like three or four titles on it, and like, oh, okay, that's great. That's a good letterbox yeah, list. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Um, so yeah, uh, but uh, at Astro, I think is great. I, I I really dug it a lot more than I was anticipating. Um, just 
great use of raising the stakes and, and uh, elevating that tension. And I think uh, Gray does a great job here. I really kind of wanted to see him like a horror movie now. Mm. I want to see him really kind of yeah. play with that kind of stuff. Or, yeah, he's got a beat in here that makes you think he'd be good at it. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I'm real, real pro on Ad Astra. All right, very good, very good. Thank you for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. What do you think, Dalton? You have seen the film before. Yeah, I, I, I was one of the, the, the lucky few. <laughs> there weren't very many of us, apparently. We, yeah, few, this we had, had a, a few. We band of brothers. That's right. It had an $85 million budget, and it came in with about 150 worldwide gross, so it barely <laughs> did Oof. anything. Yeah, probably didn't quite squeak by in the green or in yeah. the black, whatever they say. Uh, yeah, I, I uh, really enjoyed the second watch. Uh, the one thing, and Arthur alluded to this, um, that I keyed in on this, this rewatch is that voiceover performance. Uh, I just kind of went with it. Uh, I tried not to be too critical of it. I, I, I do tend to, uh, uh, raise my eyebrow uh, at a voiceover, especially when it becomes prominent. Um, but the first time I was just kind of let it, let myself enjoy it and didn't, uh, get my hackles up about it. But this time I really keyed in on the voiceover and, and thought about it. I'm, just really blown away at how well, and maybe this uh, has to do. Uh, maybe this helped that sound Oscar uh, non non they got, but the the balance between voiceover performance and on screen performance is so seamless and is used for so many different effects. It's used for uh, showing like uh, McBride. Uh, I was going to just call him Pip, but it shows McBride's cognitive dissonance about his own life. Yeah. Uh, in the voiceover and the way he's showing the juxtaposition between his internal monologue and how he's reacting to certain situations, watching his his internal life and interior view of his own existence broaden throughout the film and using that voiceover to show that I think is really great. Um, I think the argument could be made that it, it doesn't really quite service the film or it's maybe too extra with the, the psych evals he has, but I think... Again, that shows us these moments where he's trying to pass these psyche valves, yeah. and we know that he shouldn't be, he shouldn't be passing. Yeah. We know for a fact that uh, he is bullshitting his way through these. Uh, and, and I think getting to, to really see that double life that he's living uh, is a great benefit to the film. That was the thing that I keyed in on uh, in, in a really big way on this watch. I, I'm with you, Arthur. I love all the set pieces here. Uh, it, it is like James Cray sat down and went, well, you can't make 2001 anymore, but... Maybe if you put some car chases in it, you could, uh, which is not a wrong guess. Uh, I like it. Uh, that's yeah. That's what I, I'm here for. Sign me up. Take my money, please. Uh, Arthur mentioned the, uh, the the colonization of space being kind of just lightly alluded to here. I'm I'm with you. I love this uh, just half a view of a uh, interplanetary but not interstellar human spacefaring race. I, I love that period. Like this is a big part of why I like the Expanse uh, that that sci-fi show a lot. Um, I, I like that idea of uh, futurism, that like period of futurism uh, theorizing of, all right, well, we can get to other planets, but you know, we, we don't even know the science on what we would do beyond that yet. What if we just go ahead and play in that pocket? Uh, and I love how banal space travel is in this, in this world, because we get very, as Arthur said, we get very little info other than lots of countries are doing it. And we'll also get that it's been pretty heavily commercialized, which I think is fun. So we see the DHL. He's got to fly commercial to the moon, right? Yeah, he's got to fly commercial to the moon and pay 125 bucks for the blanket package. Just so damn funny. Which he does not bat an eye uh, he at. Seems, yeah, well, he, he, the he's voiceover. He's well taken care of. Yeah, but it's, it's so fun. He has to it's, fly well, commercial on the side. It's and, the headphone price. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. It's exactly Here's your that. hot towelette that's yeah. wrapped in like a napkin wrapper. Yeah, and then he goes to the moon, and there's all this tourist stuff. Like, I love, I love these details. Yeah, give me, the, I uh, spend an entire movie 
uh, at the moon. Just walking this world. Yeah, it's clerks yeah. on the moon. Uh, <laughs> and a dis- somebody in a Discord server I'm in uh, I want a said moon they want pirates uh, movie. Su- support the moon girls. I was like, oh, watch. Yeah, I'll watch the, the friggin' drunk moon tavern movie. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then even when we get to Mars, we see this half-ass attempt at uh, you know terraforming and colonization, and it just kind of seems like it's not going anywhere. It, everybody on Mars knows that this is a lost cause. Like, I love the just these, these textural details of the world. I, 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 he has that line early when he gets to the moon. I think he's like, we just ruined everything. Yeah, we're world eaters yeah. is what he says, which mm-hmm. is such a good line. Uh, that's that's just a good line. That's yeah. a good VO. Uh, yeah, I like the uh, the uh, jaded noir detective energy. Uh, speaking of, uh, what did Jack do? I think Ad Astra is kind of colored in with that, a similar tonal brush there. Uh, in terms of the VO. And it makes sense that what we know about McBride is, of course, this internal monologue is, like, overly wrought and dramatic. Like, yeah, that makes sense for this dude who... Well, we also met his dad. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, well, and again, we, we Tommy, see how... He, not a good dad. We see how he conducts himself in the world. He reveals nothing. He is a blank slate to everybody he interacts with. So, of course, his interior monologue can't shut up about critiquing everything yeah. it comes across. Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of this character. I'm with you, Arthur. I think it's the better performance he gave this year. Uh, I, it asks so much of him. To, he's required to do so much without overacting. And look, you've seen 12 Monkeys. You know Brad Pitt can overact. My man's not afraid to go there. He'll, he'll uh, dive into the River of Ham with uh, Abandon. But he's so restrained here, so restrained. And I'm just kind of blown away by the performance because I think uh, it's – the best one he's ever done, I think. I really think it's his best performance. That's good. Uh, he's aged enough that, like, he's not hamstrung by his beauty anymore. He gets to just act. He doesn't have to have a big, goofy character trait. He gets to just be a person. And I think that's done a lot for his performances. So, yeah, that's uh, that's where I'm at with it. I am keyed in on the performance on this rewatch. But as Arthur said, the visuals here are, are a feast for the eyes. Dustin, what did you think about Sad Bradstra? Um, I, I had a good time with it. Before we get into that, I just want to mention that River of Ham is my um, new uh, fusion barbecue and uh, smoothie restaurant. Have we never talked it. about this? Yeah, that's a Kenneth Branagh thing. The River of Ham. Yeah, Kenneth Branagh talks about the River of Ham. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a smoothie barbecue joint now. <laughs> yeah. The River of Ham. <laughs> that sounds disgusting. Can I get the barbecue, br- uh, barbecue brisket peanut butter? Smoothie? Oh, yeah, I want the, uh, that burn-in concrete. <laughs> Thanks, brother. Uh, that's, that's I me. wouldn't be surprised yeah. if that doesn't exist. Oh my God, I, I, I think you already said exactly what I was thinking. It is 2001 A Space Odyssey with car chases. I mean, and yeah. that, that is why it fits that category of sort of peak good trash. It is definitely playing around in that world of cinema and cinema of the past, and it's full of references and intertextualities. And it's, it's a Hollywood movie in 2019. But it's a big, fun um, Hollywood film as well. And so, I mean, there is this sort of art film, this sort of art house, European art house aesthetic at work if you just take the bits of Brad Pitt wrestling with the story of abandonment with his father Tommy Lee Jones and so and and those bits themselves they play like European art house films but the rest of the movie just plays like a great big loud Sam Mendes or Christopher Nolan action piece I mean Interstellar is a movie that came to mind several times sure. oh, as yeah. I was watching the film um, but really I mean Skyfall was um, almost as much in my head um, as I was watching with the car chases and the, yeah. the skydiving and I mean there, there are yeah. things that it feels very much like a spy movie in some since he's a government he is agent. Honest, yeah, he's on a classified op. So uh, he works for man. How how fashy are those space com uniforms, huh? Man, I tell you what, the fashies <laughs> know how to dress. Um, so there is that. Uh, what's his name? I can't think of his name. Oh my god, the, Lemmy. The, no, the fashion designer. 
Uh, uh, Hugo Boss. Yeah, boss wearing motherfuckers. That's yeah. what I was trying to Hugo think. Hugo Boss looked good though. I know it's so frustrating. Uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, so uh, yeah, th- I like it's got a spy shit. I like all that about it. And I was alluding to this earlier and sort of talking over Dalton a little bit. I would watch that Moon Space Pirates movie. I I would watch it yeah. so quickly. Oh, as soon as that guy comes up to brief him on Space Pirates, the first time I saw this movie, I was like, "What? Give me this space. Got space Pirates? Yeah. yeah, give me Space Pirates." And I think in terms of pacing, by um, you know. Stringing together these uh, really reflective, heavy voiceover, um, very impressionistic kind of shots um, where, again, Pitt is sort of wrestling with his inner demons throughout the film. And you intersperse them with these big action pieces. What it does is it coaxes an audience along who might not otherwise be acclimated or yep. their palates trained yep. for that kind of film. And I think it does so quite well because, again, the, the tension of that skydiving scene, the tension of that monkey fighting scene – there's a monkey fighting scene. So good. Um, what did Jack do? Yeah. Jack tried to eat Brad Pitt's he face. He the nose That's off of a man in space. Don't get in a fight with a primate. They know what you look like. They understand your anatomy. Then they don't want it. Make a mess out of you. We've fast. got the action Mad Max space pirate mm-hmm. movie. We've got the alien crazed bamboo uh, baboons in space horror yeah. film. It's just these, yeah, it's all well, these you, vignettes. And, you, and you've got together. the inception fight scene inside a, you know, yeah. the, the tube of yeah. a, uh, of, of a space shuttle or a, a space rocket, I guess. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, these are all like very actiony set pieces, but it does serve to underscore that space travel is perilous. Right. Right. Yep. I mean, they could do that in more boring ways, but yeah, look, if your options are a sensor's busted versus you got to go to an abandoned, uh, medical, uh, uh, experiment. Give me that one. Yeah. Give me, remind me that space travel's perilous, of course, but give me excitement. Sure. As, as another great space movie um, begins with its opening um, sort of line epilogue, um, life in space is impossible. And this film is definitely cleaving very closely to that particular vision. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it is a thrill ride. It's a lot of fun. And it does have a lot of heart. So I really very, very much enjoyed it. And uh, I do think it's going to be one of those films that's going to end up being a bit passed over and probably will not find its way into a film studies course syllabus per our requirements. But I'm okay with this movie being anti-trash because I definitely think it's pretensions. Um, and I, I mean that in the best possible way. Well, I think it goes back to what we talked about with Ang Lee. And we've talked about it, obviously, with... Uh Reffin in the past, but it's that idea of blending the art house and right. the genre, and I think that's you know where this movie strongly lies. Yeah, it, its posture is towards that kind of other thing, and I think it's there. I think it's very, very successful. It, it just—it's a very, um, it, well, it's a candy-covered um, medicine. Well, and I—I th- yeah. I think that's your, a very good uh, point, Dustin, about why it won't probably uh, be looked at with scrutiny uh, by academia, right? Because it has so much candy on it mm-hmm. that I think uh, somebody who considers himself discerning might poo-poo it a little bit. You know, oh, well, it's not really doing anything that hasn't been done before. It's, oh, it's mostly an action movie. Well, okay, these things are not inherently untrue. They're not a misread of the film, but I think there's enough... The the, the synthesis is there in such a way that I think it, it bears examination. I absolutely tend to agree as well, and I do think... Um, and I would I want to amend sort of an earlier opinion that I used to hold about another film, um, about Drive. I, I don't think Drive is going to find its way into syllabi for that reason, because I do think uh, academia... Well, I, uh, there's there's two things. I think there's a bias against... Picking movies that they know you've watched, that mm. um, there's a tendency amongst professors to really try to be selective to expose you to something new. And I think yeah. that's one of the postures. But the other side of it, I think, is this as well, is that it is 
because of its excellent candy coating um, that helps, you know, one spoonful of sugar that helps that medicine go down um, because it's got that spoonful of sugar that, that for some reason academics tend to avoid it. And I do kind of anticipate both drive and this would sort of fall in the same camp. And as Re- far as... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say Refn's also got his uh, innate trollness uh, going against him. Right. He really doesn't like it when people call him smart, it seems like, because he loves making things that are... Uh, every, every, everything after drive is so... Uh, trying to get you to not watch it, yeah. it seems like. Aggressively trying exactly. not to. Exactly. Like, the Amazon show seems uh, way too dense. Nobody's watched that. Yeah. I didn't even know there was one. Oh, yeah, he did a show on Amazon. Nobody's seen it. Yeah, well, they didn't advertise very well. So, well, there you go, dear listener. That's where we're falling um, right now. And as we're discussing syllabi and where this film might fall, let's talk about it as though it was on a syllabus that we put together ourselves. And so each of us have taken to task the idea that we we're teaching a class on something and uh that this film will be part of that um bit of instruction what other films or readings would you use and what class and what sort of tack would you take um what would be the cut of your jib as you would approach this particular film arthur's making very interesting faces at me as i say it's space movie sailing metaphor okay yeah so jib jib i like the cut of your jib sir (laughs) i really do i appreciate you so much thank you oh Um, that's just nice astound me with your acumen uh yeah my class is called my dead dad uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> and it's just me working through my crap for four weeks. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure most classes that are uh, that specialized, like yeah, the professor, just like really wants to talk about this. Yeah, there, uh, there's a lot of public spaces that are just used for therapy. I mean, yeah. it, it's a real thing. Yeah, that's why open mics exist. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to start off uh, as my dad would have done. Uh, by introducing them to some John Wayne. Uh, I think there's a lot about masculinity uh, to be said in Ad Astra. And I, I think discussions of masculinity, especially in American cinema, you have to go back and talk John Wayne. I, I think that's part of that. Uh, and so I, I think for me, the movies I often remember are a, a twofer. It's McClintock mm, nice. uh, and Donovan's Reef. Um, oh, these are okay. two that were pretty ad nauseum at my home growing up that uh, we had on tape, watched them all the time. That whole spiel. Uh, but these are really the kind of the first movies I'm introduced to as a kid growing up. A lot of John Wayne, a lot of Westerns in general, but John Wayne was a big on repeat in the house. Uh, and so I think kind of parsing out what masculinity John Wayne defined in that period and how that's kind of evolved through the years and where we're at with that Astor and maybe how those kind of speak to one another is a good jumping off point. Can I, can I like piggyback on uh, and, and just because as soon as you said it, my first thought was, I don't know if you thought about this or not, the man who shot Liberty Valance mm-hmm. and the way it yep. juxtaposes Jimmy Stewart's character versus John, John Wayne. Wayne's character yeah. and is talking about printing that legend. Yep. You know, that, yeah. that I just in, in yeah. the same kind of vein, I think that would work really well. I as was well. thinking about the uh, Cowboys. Oh, the Cowboys is so good. Yeah. fathered all those kids. Yeah. There's so much just, you can do with John yeah. Wayne. Yeah. yeah. I, I think it's a great jumping off point. Sure. Uh, and then from there, I'd move into the Fugitive mm. uh, movie uh, my dad loved and I really respect i think it's a lot of fun it's the kind of movie we don't get anymore um ad ash was kind of in that vein but a little artsier you know than the fugitive was but i mean fugitive was a best picture nominee you know, it's kind of got a lot of uh esteem at, at the time well, and tommy lee jones won an academy yeah, award yeah. so, so yeah. we got that connection there uh, i don't care uh you know care. but uh i just there's a personal connection to the fugitive but there's a lot of talking about genre i think there that you could have in that conversation with that astra as well uh and then from there i'm going to move into logan uh, yeah kind of in sense. that same vein Checks i think out. yeah uh and just yeah uh, and then from there, I'm going to a Tree of Life. And that's the movie I thought a lot about when I was watching this. I did, too. Uh, I, I think My that man. connection uh, with Brad Pitt uh, and just those two performances, I think, play really well together. Uh, uh, but also just kind of 
you know, from a personal standpoint, that idea of the hard legalistic father and the grace peace mother, uh, and, and how those two, uh, coexist, uh, and then kind of looking at that with the father relationship and dynamic in, uh, at Astra as well, and how those two, um, have a dialogue. And that's kind of where I would take that course, I think, is, is through that lens. Very good. Very good. So, Dalton... What's your syllabus going to look like? Well, man, there's so many, uh, so many different directions you go with this. Thought about uh, stories about just like emotionally cold leads. Uh, I think there's a lot of ground there. Just kind of looking at that, just that choice to build a story around. Yeah. Well, like I that. thought about First Man a lot. Yeah, obviously. I did too. Uh, I thought about the, the going directly films about fathers route. Yeah. You know, as films about you could even just do sci-fi films about dark fathers or yeah. uh, corrupted fathers, missing fathers. Plenty of stuff there with yeah. you know, your Star Warses, your Thor threes, your blades, your blades running. Uh, but I decided let's do a, a study of Brad Pitt, uh, and I, I thought about masculinity as well, Arthur. So it is uh, Brad's and Dad's, uh, Brad Pitt and Hollywood masculinity in the early 21st century. Uh, because I think, thank you, he is kind of the last. Look, it's everybody gets called the last movie star these days, right? Because there's only so many people that can open a movie. Brad can't really open a movie. He's got a weird career. If you look through the performance numbers, yeah. weird career. But an undisputed movie star in the the Red uh, Robert Redford uh, mold. I'm yeah. very clear as somebody he seems to have modeled his career after yeah. a little bit. So I think we're going to just kind of look at Brad's career, and we're not going to take it in chronological order. We're going to jump around a whole bunch. Uh, this is going to be probably more of a gender studies class than a film class proper. Uh, because I think looking at Brad as both an actor, uh, performer, and as a public figure are going to be kind of crucial. And I, I don't, I don't know that the the public figure stuff is super help, super helpful context for a film studies class always. But I think if we're talking about Brad as a icon of mas- American masculinity, uh, then I think talking about his life as a public figure is going to be super important for us to actually get into the minutia of. Uh, how we as a culture have consumed and commodified this dude, right? So we're going to start off with some scene studies of his early work. We're going to jump into Thelma and Louise, True Romance, Twelve Monkeys, and California. Uh, I, I think there's a, a really good bevy of just different stuff there. You get Sexy Brad, you get Manic Brad, uh, you get uh, Stoner Brad, and you get Psycho Brad. Just a good sampling of that early 90s work. Uh, but then we're going to jump all the way ahead to Ad Astra. Uh, sorry, don't listen to me. We're going to save that one for last, actually. We're going to jump up forward to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, that one will probably be, I uh, uh, would devote a full class to that. This is going to be a summer course. It's intercession. It's chill. Some days we'll just watch a couple of clips. Some days we'll watch it's a like full It's like satellite movie. off campus in Taos, New Mexico. No, but everybody, <laughs> no, everybody's on campus. My university does this, and I've never been. I'm gonna, I'm no, I'm going to expect people to be in class, but everybody's going to be sunburnt and hungry over i get it it's fine it's the summer uh but we're gonna watch all of once upon a time in hollywood because i think it's helpful not just as looking at brad uh jumping from his early roles to an aged brad and look most 50 year olds don't look like brad pitt in this movie and i think this is very important to talk about but it's also important to talk about how he is framed as a fading masculine icon in the, the realm of the 60s and looking at the 1960s and the 2010s uh, kind of comparing and contrasting these two decades of American history uh, and how Brad fits uh, playing a stuntman from the 60s and also playing Brad Pitt, uh, because that's one of what he's doing once upon a time, I feel like. Next, we are going to go to Tree of Life, because I think we got to get into, uh, we're going to age him back a couple of years, get into Dad, Brad, uh, look at him as that character, look at the, the darker side, uh, the complicated side, because, you know, we've already got Psycho, uh, movie killer Brad from California, but let's look at that darkness in a you know more grounded, emotionally realistic way uh, by, by studying Tree of Life, and I think looking at him as a father in that film, 
uh, is a great way to pivot to his his life uh, outside of the screen. So we are going to be doing a study the next class of uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith and uh, By the Sea, uh, the movie that nobody saw. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's yeah, we're going to look at his on screen performances with his long term wife, uh, to long term long time wife uh, Angelina <laughs> Jolie, and probably as opposed to that short term wife, yeah, Jennifer Aniston. Right? Did they get married? I, I can't. Remember. Remember. They oh, Gwyneth Paltrow. Who can who can keep track? It's not important. It's Hollywood. What is important is Angelina, though. And I think in this class, we'll probably look at press coverage of both of them, both during their time getting together, because very famously, he was with somebody already uh, when they uh, met on the set of Mr. and Mrs. Smith. And if you watch Mr. and Mrs. Smith, as I'm sure Brad Pitt's ex did, I think it was Jennifer Aniston at that time, yes. you watch that movie going, that son of a bitch fucked her. He didn't even wait till production was done. Because that <laughs> movie is sexy. Uh, as I'll get out. Uh, nobody's seen By the Sea, so that'll be fun. There's no way anyone in the class will have seen it. I haven't seen it. But I think uh, watching two actors uh, very messily live out their divorce on camera is, uh, well, you don't get that opportunity very often, so you might as well uh, take the opportunity. Uh, my, my, should you? They made it. Should you? Uh, the art is in the world. The art is in the world. So after that, we are going to go ahead and pivot back to, all right, what even is a Brad Pitt? And this is going to be another scene sampling, because we kind of hit uh, the the real movie star arc of his career at this point by covering those films. So we're going to kind of go back, look at him as both a movie star and an actor by doing it. We're not going to give Brad Pitt the satisfaction of watching all of his best movies in this class, so we are going to do scene studies for this one. Uh, but we'll look at Seven and Fight Club, which I think are integral uh to the mythos of brad pitt fight club obviously yeah. uh is kind of integral to his mythos as a movie star but i think seven is as well and i think his character in seven uh pairs very interestingly with tyler durden in terms of uh, breaking down this this 90s hyper masculinity uh especially just where his his character arc takes him throughout seven he's a intellectually disinterested guy and in fact is mad anytime somebody asks him to use his brain uh, which I think is very fun. Uh, we'll do scene studies of those, and then uh, outlaw uh, Jesse James. We're not going to say the whole title. Um, and Benjamin Button. Uh, we'll look at both of those and kind of look at these big epic films that he did where he did restrain performances. Uh, and finally, with that scene study, we'll be looking at Burn After Reading to remind you that Brad Pitt does whatever he wants at all times. You know my favorite subdued Brad Pitt, though? What's that? Legends of the Fall. Yeah, I thought about going. I haven't seen enough of that early back catalog that, like, uh, 96 to, like, 99. Meet Joe, Meet Black. Joe Black. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Legends of Meet the Fall, Seven okay. Years in Tibet. These are the ones that I was like, eh, I think you get enough of that with that early 90s He's block. got that German accent in Tibet. So. Yeah. I, look, I, I think Seven and Fight Club and the, the picks we've got from the early 90s are going to give us what we need. But I'm, I'm with you. Those are blind spots for me. I'd like to check them out. Look, Interview with a Vampire almost got some play on this syllabus, but he's got a big filmography. We can't hit everything. We do close with Ad Astra because I, I think it's his best performance, and I think it is the performance that this is a dude wrestling. Look, this is a film not made that long after his divorce is finalized. He has an entire gaggle of children uh, with uh, his ex. That's a complicated life. Uh, and look, they're, they're rich people, but they're still people. And I think examining uh, commodified personalities. Uh, these are people who don't get to be real people to some extent, and uh, I think it's important for us to feel bad for them every once in a while. Uh, not all the time. <laughs> but I think it is important to take a step back and remember that, sure, they're getting to live the dream of playing pretend for their job, and they get paid a whole lot of money for it, but uh, they don't get to be real people ever. Uh, and I think Ad Astra plays with those ideas 
really interestingly in his in the, the what he brings in his performance. Uh, so yeah, uh, we'll probably be some more readings in there too to actually you know put some uh, meat on those bones. But uh, yeah, we're gonna look at Brad Pitt and uh, what he has meant for Hollywood masculinity over the last thirty some odd years or so. Excellent, excellent. I like it very much. Um, my syllabus would be a, a module or maybe part of a class. I mean, it could be very long, actually. Um, but I've just got a handful of movies that I would want to string together for some conversations about interplanetary science fiction. Yeah. This specific, not interstellar travel. No Star Treks or Wars gotcha. or interstellars. We've got to stay around Seoul. And uh, so it's got to be here. And uh, the first thing, you know, you got to start with what's very important, you know, foundational. And just like Iggy Pot said, you got to give me danger. And you got to start with gravity because life in space is impossible. And I do think it's a really excellent little action film because it is mm. talking about just the humanity of going into space. Great human being versus nature movie. Yeah. 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 And uh, so I, I think that's just a good place to start with just the o overall threat of colonization and give giving students a real um, idea of the danger of that particular thing i'm teaching an american lit one seminar right now it's not a seminar uh just a course right now mm. and uh, in that we're talking about the colonization of the americas and one of the things that i'm trying to really strongly impress upon my students is just how dangerous it was because we tend to have a very sort of candy-coated you know first thanksgiving kind of view of that and i'm not just talking about the native americans and the sort of conflict that was going on uh there where there was some real threat for sure. You and, might as well have been going to a different planet. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, starvation and just the elements and malaria and mosquitoes. It could so, take you a year to get there if yeah, the winds weren't favorable. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it took, the, it took the Mayflower Pilgrims like 67 days on, on sea to do that. Mosquitoes so big they could carry off your little sister. I mean, it's just insane kind of a you know situation that they're falling into. The Roanoke Island, we talked about the disappearing and continual disappearing of this Roanoke Island settlement mm -hmm. and uh, those kinds of things. And so I'd want to really impress just the danger element element of what we're dealing with when we're talking about doing that kind of work. And so that's the first place I would want to start. Um, then moving into Ad Astra, I think it's a good sort of like this is us expanding across the planet with just some images of what it might look like and what it could look like and begin to wrestle with some of those environmental issues and also some of the socioeconomic uh, sort of international corporations and and those kind of things. And lastly, I'd require a couple novels. Um, Kim Stanley Robinson's uh, Red Mars trilogy, Red Mars, Green Mars, Blue Mars, are the titles of the three works. Tell me more. This sounds cool. Uh, so it's about um, a terraforming project on Mars, and it goes over about 250-ish years or so of human history. And uh, these uh, first hundred go and develop a colony. And as immediately, there's all of these sort of intersocial sort of uh, watership down kind of questions about how do we make a society? Do we have to do things like they do on Earth? And what about the fact all those corporations own everything back on Earth? And, you know, the reason this why rules. we're doing this is because we wrecked that planet. So maybe we ought to think about that before we do it. And then what are the ethics of actually changing a planet? And should we be doing that at all? And, well, we're doing it anyway, and now how do you handle that? And also, they turn into elves because there's this uh, this crazy cool. little thing that goes on where they figure out this cool. genetic sequencing process, which uh, prevents genetic drift and decay. And so the first hundred live about 200 years over the course of Mars being red, eventually becoming green with vegetation, and eventually having its own 
surface water blue and uh so that's... we're going to talk about the expanse off uh, off mic okay uh, yeah i'd love to yeah you're going to be really if if this this three colors mars trilogy is uh, up your alley you're going to be in three the colors expanse. mars thank I you thank <laughs> you kieslowski's three colors mars give me it give it to me now but i i do think just sort of wrestling with that and the ways in which these kinds of kind of lowbrow middlebrow science fiction projects are wrestling with um, some of the sort of fundamental environmental issues that sort of surround all the sort of interplanetary um, tra- space travel mm-hmm. kind of science fiction. And so you can sort of begin to engage with those themes. How do you maintain your humanity in the face of terrible striving to sur- sur- just striving to survive? Uh, what is it ab- about a-, a search? And what is it about the-, the search for extraterrestrial life? I almost added the film Contact yeah. to my list as well. Makes sense. Um, because that-, that sort of aspect of it is working as well. But really, I-, I don't know if it quite fit or not. It would depend. It might be something I would reference in class. But as of right now, I wouldn't place it on there. And just all of those kind of questions about extraterrestrial life, about God, um, contact particularly is wrestling with this, but Ad Astra is wrestling with it as well. And then moving into just what are the mechanics of this kind of, you know, um, adventuring and exploration and uh, what does that life look like and what other ethical, um, interpersonal and uh, just um, bioethical um ecological concerns are being raised by those um, kinds of uh, projects. And so that would be uh, where I would probably take my tack if I was um, teaching a class using Dad Astra. So there you go, dear listener. Your syllabus just got quite a bit longer. It did indeed. So um, I believe now it's time to get down to business. It's business. It's business time. So the first thing I want to talk about uh, space underwear, uh, space underwear. I was just thinking about socks and space. Do you, do you do astronauts wear socks? They have like I've uh, seen alien. They wear underwear. They do that. They do. They, I mean, they, they do. They have special grip tight <laughs> socks in 2001: A Space Odyssey. That yeah. way, they don't have to make it look like zero grav. Yeah, I remember. I'm just trying to think. I like. Do, 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 I wonder if they do have grippy socks, like hospital socks. That's probably what they're wearing under the moon boots, right? I yeah, mean, hospital socks. Yeah. No, they're they're all those like five finger toe um, rock climbing socks. <laughs> Most people just. Join the the astronaut program so they can get hospital socks. <laughs> that's, that's all they want. It's just they want those socks. They also so get really bad. cool cups. Hey, look, listener, anytime you find yourself hospitalized, you make sure you take those socks home. Yeah. Those are good socks they're, for doing chores they're, in. They're handy socks. That's why. But I've never gotten a pair because I have never been to a hospital except for the time I got born in one. So we got to get you hospitalized, bud. Uh, well, <laughs> come at me, bro. <laughs> so where do we want to start with uh, I, uh, analyzing this? I want to start with intertextuality. Okay, uh, because sure. I do find that this movie is very, very sort of pastiche, winky, it's, postmodern. It and, knows how much it's like 2001. Right. Well, it's like yeah. a similar mission, in fact. And, yeah, absolutely it is. And so, yeah, the 2001, and in terms of cinematography and style, that's where I see the 2001 stuff the most. There is a moment towards the end of the film where he's collecting the memory of uh, the research that his father's done, and he's removing these large blocks of information that do feel very much like the removing Hal's memory. Uh, well, his uh, sort of um, central function chips to kill Hal at the end of the film that Bowman is doing there. And I, I felt like that reference was pretty strong um, there as well. But there's other stuff going on. Um, so we do have Donald Sutherland as an old astronaut. Yes. Yeah, and Tommy Lee Jones is an old astronaut. So Space Cowboys. I've, yes. Yeah, I've seen that movie, right. Yeah. And, and so the, the Tommy first... Lee Jones has played astronaut a lot, hadn't he? Yeah. Well, like at least twice. Right? Is he in the right stuff, too? 
I know he's in Space Cowboys. He's not the right stuff. He's not the right stuff, I don't think. Uh, listener, hit us up. If you can think of more Space Time Lee Jones movies, I feel like I'm missing at least one or two. I have a question. Two. Why yeah. is Ed Harris always Mission Control in the movies? Because but... he looks... You, you see Ed Harris and you're like, I can believe this guy's running shit. Yeah. yeah. Same with Billy Bob Thornton. Yeah. yeah. Uh, when they put on their command voice as opposed to their like uh, weirdo voice... You just believe it. Yeah, I guess it must be a thing. But anyway, is there any uh, other intertextual references that really ring for you? Yeah, I think there's a couple things that are working here. So, you know, the movie itself, I mean, Mad Max, um, we've already named it, but that, that entire uh, lunar rover scene is a, it's a sequence from Mad Max Fury Road. Yeah, there's yeah. A, they're in dune buggies, they got guns, yeah. I mean, and so you're doing that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, there was another sort of big intertext that I was uh, there. They, well, the, the, there's the space fall thing, and we've been getting that a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the, there's space needle towers at the beginning. It's unclear what those towers do, or I've yeah, forgotten. Some but, kind of antennae yeah. or something. Yeah, but it's yeah. very similar to uh, a couple. I mean, gravity. I right. thought about that, but there's also uh, the Star Trek. I think all three of the new Star Treks have a space Probably. jump. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. But yeah, I, I thought about it. I was like, oh, these are visuals we've seen a lot recently. But they're in First Man. I mean, I think it does yeah. imitate that opening to First Man quite a bit as well. Good point. Yeah. I was thinking about the color set design on Mars as well, which made me think a lot of Beyond the Black Rainbow. Mm. Uh, I mean, you know, it, and again, and sort of the style of the film is like these sort of quiet, meditative, sort of almost non-narrative because you're not getting a lot of explanation of what's going on with Tommy Lee Jones and yeah. his relationship with his with his son. And uh, the way that room sort of glows and fades and glows yeah. and there's this sort of a pulsing light that's at work there uh, felt very much like a film like Beyond the Black Rainbow. I don't know if it's necessarily a Panos Cosmatos yeah. reference per se, but... It did seem to strongly be at work there. It makes me wonder if uh, Deacons and Hoytma are uh, buds or not. It made me think of the the Las Vegas stuff and Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Yes, yeah, uh, yeah, pretty heavily. Just that the, the uh, and Dune. The sh- well, yeah, and Dune. Just that that hue. Um, man, I'm so excited for Denis News Dune. Uh, we'll talk about that later. I've been getting into the lore of Dune. Y'all, it's, oh, it's fun. It's so cool. It is very oh, it's fun. It's so cool. We could talk about it later, though. Not important for this. Uh, yeah, the, 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 the Mars stuff. I'm a big fan of the color palette there. Yeah. I think even visually I've already alluded to it, but I think Terrence Malick. I think there's mm-hmm. a lot of Terrence Malick here. With the, the VO. Shot, yeah. The VO and just that kind of, I guess, airiness to it. There's something kind of not quite grounded uh, yeah. in, in moments. I, and I don't mean that they're floating in zero gravity, but I mean the actual elements of the film feel very kind of abstract and airy as well. Yeah, even those action set pieces, Arthur, I think fit within that airiness, right? Because there is just kind of an elliptical sort of storytelling. I mean, it's very propulsive in terms of narratively, like one thing is taking him to the next, but it is kind of, we'll get these very kind of elliptical shifts from one location to the next, uh, usually because they're they're long haul in space. It's not, it's boring. But but the last major reference I was thinking about so much as I watched the film, kind of knowing where it was going, um, is that it felt very much like um, Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now, which is a sort oh, of oh sure yeah Heart a big of big riff of Heart yeah. of Darkness. This is sort of you know episodic set of journeys yeah. to a madman at the end, mm. right? Yeah, which is sure. sort of this Dantean kind of shape to it as well. I figured you'd be the touch point for this, but uh, a lot of the comparisons I saw were Tarkovsky and Solaris. I don't feel like I, no, I don't think it's got a spirit like Tarkovsky in the same kind of way, and I, I don't I don't think it's got the same kind of mysticism. I think it's a much more cynical approach to uh, the religiosity of a Tarkovsky. And we'll talk maybe more about that here in a little bit. There you have it. Shots fired. Dustin says, if you think this is like Solaris, you don't know Tarkovsky. I, uh, uh, I'm just fucking <laughs> just kidding. No, no. Dalton's done with hot takes, but he's going to create for everybody yeah, else. That's right. It's that's like, right. I, I would like to not be stabbed <laughs> on the internet. Yeah, uh, no by, a by, a, by a baboon. By a baboon. 
So, um, I get, well, I mean, do we want to talk about spirituality next? Yeah, I, mean, I think that's a good place to start because this film is very humanistic and it's, I think so. I think it is, uh, it's a deeply like existentially meditative film yeah. for sure. But yeah, I, I think it, it's, it, especially those, that final monologue, which, ooh, yeah. buddy, does that get me? I love it. Yeah. Uh, that final monologue is just like, I will be attentive. I will carry people's burdens as they will carry mine. Yep. I'm just going to be a good dude. I'm going to be solid and steady. And that's that is kind of the thesis of this film right. is like quit get get your head out of the clouds. You're just gonna freak yourself yeah. out about how big the universe is. But I think the traditional mysticism or spirituality or religiosity of the film is sort of embodied in the character of Tommy Lee Jones and it, it looks like religious fanaticism. It exactly. looks like the kind of thing that madness. does madness. And um if I can't th- make you understand, then I will kill you. There is a there is a throwaway little bit. I don't wonder if anybody else noticed this. Are we good? Yeah. There's a shot as Brad Pitt is first entering into um, the uh, Project Lima space station mm-hmm. there um, by Neptune. And uh, as he does, you're panning over a lot of the research materials. And there's this like ream of data that's coming out. And written in red ink is, read the alt data. Yeah. The, I mean, yeah. and and the, the, I mean, I, I think there's this sort of like radical right politics and this sort of idea of alternate facts mm. and this idea of sort of twisting things for um, ideological agendas and justifying horrible, horrible um, sets of policies. That I, I do think that the religiosity of um, of um, Tommy Lee Jones's character is sort of helping us sort of throw a light back towards the planet Earth and some other things that are going on. Yeah, well, I mean, because it, it, it is trying to key on key in on, like, obsession, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, obsession with understanding humanity's place in the universe, right? And, and uh, well, I, I'll, I grew up evangelical, so I'm allowed to call it a death cult. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll do it right now. But it is that same kind of, if, when you're only preoccupied with the limits of humanity's existence, right? If you're only preoccupied with, like, some predestined final battle then you're going to always drive yourself towards apocalypse. You can't help but do it. And this is where Tommy Lee Jones finds himself is he is so obsessed with definitively proving that we're alone that he kills all of his crewmates and then decides, well, if we are alone, then I might as well just beef earth, I guess. Uh, he just kind of loses his rope. Yeah, he says that it's caused by his crewmates, the uh, the flashes, and he acts like he's trying to stop it. But I, I get the impression I don't believe him. I, I get, yeah, I get the impression he's if he has been trying to slow it down, he's about to give up. Yeah, yeah. is anybody? And again, I've, this was your, both y'all's first re, uh, watch, but uh, for me, uh, on the first watch, I kind of had forgotten about the surge by the time they got there. Yeah. Uh, but on this watch, I, I was trying to key in on. I was like, "Wait, is Tom really Jones trying to destroy the Earth? Does he care?" I, mean, I don't think he cares. Yeah, yeah, kinda... I, 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 yeah. I think he's so sort of quasi interested in avoiding it, but does yeah. It seems to be kind he's of. He's more obsessed with the knowledge, terrestrial life. Yeah, yeah he and wa- his particular he, pursuit. Yeah, he, he's staring into the abyss, and it has stared back as it often does. And I think those final moments with him, Dustin, to your point about like fanaticism and stuff, it does kind of make the argument for uh, humanity's need to become pluralistic if we have any interest in going to the stars, right? Like, it requires a lot of smart people from a lot of different places because not everybody that's smart enough to make space work, space travel work, lives in the same place. Right. That's not how humanity works. Uh, So, like, this uh, Brad Pitt's character throws a lot of shade on them taking behavioral meds in space and refuses to take his... But uh, I think by the time we get to the end of the movie, you see the need. There's a reason these these, spa- sci- these scientific expeditions are doling out 
mood stabilizers. Yeah. Right. Because being in space is existentially Stressful. horrifying. Yeah. Anything goes wrong, you're toast. But I do want to point this out as we've just had sort of a little lengthy conversation as to what exactly um, Tommy Lee Jones' character's relationship is to the surge. And clearly, 90s energy drinks will kill us all. I mean, I think that's what the film's trying to suggest to us. <laughs> but, Checks out. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, um, <laughs> yeah. uh, that it is sort of unfollowable, I think, a little bit there. Also, that moment where uh, Ruth Nega um, says, oh, you don't know the real story about your dad, and she just happens to have, like, you know, the, the future, um, you know, Yeah, it's a real the dead speak moment. And it's like, wait, wait, what? How do you have this? And why do you happen to have this right now? I've been holding on this, just waiting for Brad Pitt's character. This moment. Yeah. yeah presumably because she's, like, administration on Mars, but doesn't have a military ranking. Maybe that's why she hasn't, but can't disseminate it. I don't know, it, but it, it definitely feels like the the thing James Gray is least interested in, but he knows he has to get pit there somehow. Yeah, the dead speak. Yeah, yeah it's like, oh, yeah. we gotta get this show on the road. Yeah, how and, do we get him to space? Oh, space flares. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. So the bits there. I mean, and so there are some bits there that are a little bit weak for the film. But my, I digress on yeah. that. And I and I also think before we move on, as we were talking about the intertextuality, I think that is part of what's going to hold the film back in its critical review is that it is a really sort of well made stew of existing ingredients. Mm. Uh, rather than a really kind of an exclusively original kind yeah. of work. Um, so we do need to talk about um, masculinity, but also um, a particular sort of flavor or attribute or characteristic of uh, a lot of masculinities in which um, that idea of this sort of repression, this sort of idea of compartmentalization that we're seeing over and over and over in the film and just how really unhealthy it is. And I, I think the film does a great job of showing that two, two particular truths about that is that, first of all, that kind of compartmentalization can make you very, very successful in a workplace yeah. mm. and accomplished in a, a particular set of goals, but also can kind of make you a disaster as a person yeah. as it examines that relationship with Liv Tyler character i think the, the the way the film deals with this in like a micro and a macro way is really interesting too right because we were just talking about the the plot logistics of this information that's withheld from it but the film does make a point uh, of reminding you pretty frequently that brad pitt's superiors know a lot more than they're telling him yeah true the, this yeah. compartmentalization is not just like something that he has chosen to do because he has an absent father not, it's not something part of society psychology is reinforcing yeah. the system within him. he lives in. there's a sociological exactly. sort of compartmentalization as well yeah, yeah, yeah for sure he's not only an astronaut he's a military man and these are agencies that thrive on secrecy he's on a need-to-know basis yeah, and he doesn't need to know what's yep. going on with his father. Yeah, that's uh, as simple as that. And they've known his his dad's been disappeared for what sixteen years? Uh, gone for twenty nine. Yeah, right. Disappeared for off sixteen. Off the radar for sixteen. Yeah. And they've known he was alive this whole time. They didn't tell him jack shit. Yeah, that's they knew really he his, he, his not crew okay. mutinied and he killed them all. Uh, so of course he's compartmentalizing. Uh, his his model for a father is a guy he literally cannot talk to. Yeah. Uh, yeah. How's he going to end up any better? And I think that's the thing that the film does very well. Because it's easy to say, uh, men be like that, huh? Because, yeah, men do be like that. And it's easy to dunk on us for that. And you should at all chances that you have. But I, I think it does get into the nuances of how these behaviors are, are enforced in, in a way that it can be tricky for somebody to calibrate against. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think what one thing that the film does narratively with this idea of compartmentalization and breaking apart those compartments is that the moment in which Brad Pitt becomes emotionally compromised on that Mars base and uh, is then, um, you know, um, 
whatever I'm, the word I'm looking for. He's he's, he's locked up. He's, well, he's, he's slated off of the mission. He's wiped off the mission. Yeah. And I uh, get scragged, I guess. Yeah, for not sticking to the script on the, the message they're beaming to him. Right. But and that's the thing that gets him to respond. That, that's what gets him to respond. And also, um, his decision to sort of go on ship, which is, you know, my son was watching this with me, mm-hmm. and he's like, well, that's their own dumb fault. And I'm like, okay, they could have responded differently and disobeyed orders. You're not wrong. However... They're supposed to obey orders, and Brad Pitt's character caused this to happen. He if is he, the bad guy in this situation. If he had done what he was supposed to do, they wouldn't have died. And so I, I, I want to sort of leave that moral ambiguity there. But what motivates him there is because of that lack of compartmentalization and his success in getting – I mean, even though his dad ends up committing suicide, his success in getting his dad off the space station to uh, deploy the package of nukes and save the world – his success is really dependent upon him being reconnected to his emotional core and being able to reach out to his father, who is admitting that he is so compartmentalized. I don't care. I I, I never loved you yeah. or your mom or cared about any of that kind of stuff. It was always the work, and I just sort of got involved in the stuff that you do, you know, which yeah. is a story for a lot of us, uh, and uh, which is tough um, to, to think about. And there's you know, cats in the cradles playing in my head the whole time. Like, oh my! The the first review <laughs> I wrote of this was uh, cats in the cradle with a silver spoon. Am I right? <laughs> Right. <laughs> that was my, my initial review when I saw this at theaters. It's yeah. not wrong. Yeah, oh. it is brutal. It's a savage moment in the film that is, again, this is a film where you see a dude whose nose got chewed off by a baboon. That's maybe the most brutal thing that happens in this film is, I don't give a shit about you. Yeah, but the, the point I'm trying to make, though, is it is his um, decompartmentalization that does save the world. It's Yeah, it's learning this emotional truth from his father that allows him to be like, all right. You all right, dude? Whatever. Like, we gotta go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> whatever. We gotta blow this place up and get out of here. Uh, and if that's how you feel, that's fine. But I now have to integrate this information and do the right thing. And I still love you. Yeah, which is I love yeah, you enough to get you off of here. Which is a beautiful moment. Well, and it, it leads to uh, you know, it's it's the space delirium he gets on the way to Neptune, right? Uh, I think that uncorks that for him. It mm-hmm. is all I, I've wanted my entire life was solitude. I'm such an idiot. Now that I have all the solitude I could ever want, I just want somebody else to be here with me. Yeah. It's yeah. it's a great moment, but it is, I think, does a great job of highlighting how that compartmentalization just leads to isolation, which just leads to depression. Right. Like that's that's what it that's what the recipe is. Yeah. That's how you get there. What do we think about the end with Liv Tyler showing back up at the end? It's ambiguous enough. I mean Do we like that button? I'm with Arthur, it's ambiguous enough. Um I don't like it as much as I like the the first man button where uh, Gosling and Claire Foy get a little glass touch. That's a really sweet moment. Yeah, uh, it doesn't land quite as well as that, but um, I don't know. The button plays because of the fully emotionally honest psych uh, eval he gets that he gives at the end of the film. It's mm-hmm. the first time that he's been honest in a psych eval. Yeah, um, and I think it works because of the the monologue that follows the button. But yeah, I guess, okay, if your ex was presumed dead and showed back up on Earth, you'd probably go. Like, even if you didn't plan on getting back together. Like, if you... Yeah, it sounds like they've only him. been divorced. It's, is it ever clear if they're just separated uh, or divorced? I don't think they're ever to Or ever yeah. married. I mean, or ever married, yeah. Oh, they were married, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Married once, no kids. That's right. She's credited with his name, so... So, okay, yeah, they're either separated or probably recently divorced. Yeah. So I'm not that against her showing up. It is... It is a very movie thing to have happen. Correct. I, I think it works. It works tonally for the the movie needs it. Mm-hmm. Uh, after Tommy Lee Jones spaces himself, it does kind of need that. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, any other big thematic little pieces that we want to address with this film? 
Uh, let's talk about Fermi's Paradox real quick. That'll be a fun place to take us home. Uh-huh. Fermi's Paradox? Fermi's Paradox. So I... Fermi is this guy. I can't remember his first you name. You better spell me some Fermi. F-E-R-M-I. Fermi. Okay. Um, this is a famous... This, this Smarter people than me talk about this, so if I And get... it's not a Pokemon character. I'll, I'll get there in a second. Hold okay. on. If I get any of this wrong, sorry. I, I'm a soft sciences guy. What are you going to do? Uh, but Fermi was a guy that worked at Los Alamos on the, the nukes. Um, uh, I think, anyway, the point is he's sitting down uh, with all the, maybe he worked at SETI. It's not important. He worked where smart people work. Uh, and they're sitting around the cafeteria one day, and he goes, all right, hold on. If mathematically speaking, there's definitely alien life out there. And number two, if the numbers are so big that not only is there probably alien life out there, there's probably a lot of it, then question three is, where the hell is everybody? So the paradox is, how have we not stumbled bass backwards into intelligent life yet uh and then there's that's just kind of the key thrust of the search for intelligent life is wrestling with uh, fermi's paradox which a lot of it is well most societies probably don't become spacefaring uh or if they do become spacefaring they kill themselves uh because they become spacefaring right around the time they figure out nuclear weapons um if they do figure out spacefaring then there's infinite chances for a intergalactic empire to crumble and fall and be <laughs> into history so it's just there's so many uh hurdles that a civilization has to get past to become interstellar and then even then if it becomes interstellar one of two things happens they either conquer everybody so we haven't lucked out on that one uh or two they don't want to come to a backwater they don't want to interfere with our uh our dumb petty bullshit don't want to violate the prime directive yeah or yeah they look at us and go space gross. yeah yeah i mean and there's again there's even more and more theories uh for explaining fermi's paradox for instance that um other life on other planets might be so different and i mean literally alien yeah. to our own that there would be no possibility of communication or recognition of one to another yeah because yeah. we're we almost almost exclusively search with uh, radio signals which seems like a pretty reasonable way to say all right any you're gonna have to invent radio waves to get the space you're just gonna you're gonna have to do that but maybe not Maybe not. Not if we're talking about like I don't know, psychic squids or something like mm-hmm. in uh, Arrival. Yeah, it could be. Maybe not. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I just thought Fermi's paradox is a fun place to take us out at. Uh, you want to know one of my favorites? Uh, it's because we live in a computer simulation, and the computer simulation is not built to render aliens. There you go. That, like that, that most likely way. true. <laughs> That's most likely scenario, I think. Well, all right. There you go, dear listener. Those were our thoughts on Ad Astra. We're going to now render a verdict. Shell for trash with this particular film. I go to you first, Mr. Arthur Gordon, picker of the film, Virgin Watcher. What do you say? Shell for trash, Ad Astra. I feel pretty comfortable shelving this. I, I, I really do dig it uh, quite a bit more than I anticipated. I think there's a lot there to kind of delve into, and I think a rewatch would really help unpack and uh, allow me to connect with that material uh, on a, on another level. Uh, I really appreciate uh, everything kind of going on in this movie. Uh, I, I really dig it, so yeah, I'd shelf it. Very good, very good. What do you say, Dalton? Yeah, this this film's got a lot of legs uh, on it in terms of Saturday afternoon films. Uh, I mean, this this is just in that pocket. It's exactly entertaining enough to keep you from falling asleep. Uh, but a, a thinky enough that uh, you're you're getting really nice and settled into the couch. Uh, th- this has got legs. Um, if we still lived in an era where anybody watched anything on cable, I'd say this would be on TNT for the next 20 years. I don't know if that's going to be the case, but I, I think... It'll be on TNT streaming service. Bingo. Oh, gosh. I, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. This is a film that, that does live for that. Oh, have you seen Ad Astra? I mean, that's kind of where this, this sits at. Yeah. So, yeah, I, this is my first James Gray. I don't think we've covered that yet. Um, interested in a lot of his movies, just never gotten around to one before this. And, uh, this is great. And, and Arthur's, as Arthur said earlier in the show, we don't make a whole lot of movies like this. We just, 
the the system for greenlighting pictures as as such that this kind of eighty million dollar uh, grown up thriller doesn't really get made. Um, so yeah, I, I think there's a lot here, not just in terms of themes we've talked about, but in terms of uh, big studio filmmaking 2019. Uh, there's a lot to talk about and we'll unpack with it. So yeah, it's shelfable. Uh, I tend to say shelf as well. I think it's a very very watchable high concept Hollywood film. And uh, so yeah, I mean th- th- I like that kind of stuff. And so it's a soft shelf. It's not like one of those movies that like I must have, I must own now. But when I encounter it in a Blu-ray in a dollar bin, um, it's going to come home with me. And uh, so that's yeah, I like Ad Astra a lot. And it's definitely um, a movie that I would be happy to have on my shelf. Five for five, boys. We did it. Probably Aye. the first time in history we went five weeks of shelving. All of us. Wow. So unanimous an entire marathon. Well, uh, that means you can do some good programming. I do what I can. You give good program. Well, I might well, have to... Speaking of good programming, we don't have to watch anything for the next episode. Yay. That's right. It's, it's that time of the year. This is the perfect lead-in to our best of 2019 show. Uh, so next week, we're going to be highlighting our top tens. We're going to be saying what were our best performances, what were the movies we wish we'd caught up with, and all that fun stuff. Um, as we uh, look back at the uh, the year that was 2019, uh, which actually turned out to be a lot stronger, I think, in film than the mid-year point alluded to. I'll tell you what, uh, 2015 through 2019, uh, that whole... Just some bangers. It's holy crap. I mean, just an, a really great decade. Uh, the whole decade, but especially the back half of it. Uh, the aughts... started strong. You look back at the aughts for film... Ugh, it's like looking back it's at the slog. 80s. It's rough until like the last two or three years. Yeah, it's a bummer. I mean, you went, I mean, 2011, I mean, you got Social Network and you got yeah. all, uh, other stuff that came out, Black Swan and, mm-hmm. you know. 2012, uh, you got uh, 2012. You got Moneyball in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah. You got Toy Story 3 in 2010. Like, yeah. Just, yeah, again, we could just list the movies of the decade. Uh, it's just so good. And yeah, 2019, I think, closed this out great, Arthur. You're absolutely right. I'm excited to talk about it. So there you go, dear listener. Um, that's what's happening next. You keep watching, we'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.